Welcome to an inspirational teaching by our guest speaker of Adonai Church, Bangalore. We hope you enjoy this teaching. Uh, most of you know we're doing a series on the Minor Prophets. We've finished the book of Joel. And now today we will do the book of uh, Amos. And as I was studying the book of Amos, it got me so excited. Literally, I had to chisel out so much out of my notes in order to present little bit which can fit into the time that we have today. So, but if I get excited and digress here and there, forgive me, but it will be for the benefit of the body, I'm sure. You know, a few months back, I was doing a course on leadership, and in this leadership course, one of the significant things that I carried away as part of that, one statement that has remained in my mind is this. It says, power in leadership context, power corrupts Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, when it comes to us having success and prosperity, you know, we find it more difficult to handle such a thing. You know, on June 21st, just a couple of days back, in news you would have read, the CEO of Intel, who's a very successful CEO, and he's been with Intel for many years, and for the last five years, he's been CEO. He steered the company in a new direction in a changing era and all that. Brian Kranish is his name. He was fired on the 21st because at the age of 58, he landed up having a relationship with another employee. And I was like, how can you do such stupid things, having been intelligent, being successful, being prosperous, there's no, there's no dearth for anything. And I think similar cases we've read and we keep reading it, don't we? Every now and then, how successful people, celebrities shoplifting and getting caught. People who, who earn in millions shoplifting for hundreds and getting caught. Why do they do such a stupid thing? Uh, HP CEO, a few years back, was fired. He was asked to resign, and he resigned. He submitted his resignation. For what? For submitting false reports about his finances when it came to his relationship with the contractor. You know, my question is, why do leaders who are known for their integrity and intelligence land up doing such unethical things? Why do people who would risk careers, risk Everything that they have, their reputation, put it on the line. Why would they do that? You know, when I, when I analyze, there are many reasons, of course. But one thing I've concluded and one thing I've learned over the years, it is more easier for people to handle failure than to handle success. It's easier to handle failure than to handle success. And as I studied the book of Amos, I realized this was the story of Israel the northern kingdom. And today when I'm referring to Israel, I'm referring to the northern kingdom, which I spoke to you about, which again I will share in a while. They were so successful. They were so prosperous. And in all of their prosperity, their success became a stumbling block for their spiritual growth. Instead of we, we sang those songs today, you know, of blessing and everything. We forget that last line which is there. And Israel forget that last line of that song. It just said, for the glory of Jesus' name, success and prosperity became so much part of Israel that they made the whole thing about success rather than about God. 
They made the whole thing about being prosperous. Blessing itself became such a big thing. They forgot about God. And you know, this is true in our church today very often. We have preachers who dilute messages and become entertainers in order to have the crowd that they need in the congregation. We forget to place the Word of God as it is in its bluntness and in its reality and in its truthfulness just because we want to seek more numbers to come. So teaching goes missing out of churches. Now again, when I'm referring to church, I'm not referring to the local church. I'm referring to the universal body of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the congregations out there. So this morning, I've titled my message as this, In Your Prosperity, Do Not Sin. So this will be the overarching theme of the book of Amos as we look at it in a couple of weeks. This will be the overarching theme of In Your Prosperity, do not sin. And for today, I'm going to be doing Amos chapter 1 and 2. And for this, I've chosen the title, The Messenger and the Message. Messenger and the Message. And that's what we'll be looking at. A brief background. Let's look at a brief background. How are you all okay? Are you all enjoying the teaching on the minor prophets? Something that we don't read or when we read, we don't understand. So I'm just trying to chisel it out, break it a little so that we're able to understand. Let me give you a background of the formation of Israel as a nation. I'm not talking about Abraham's time. I'm talking about when Judah and Israel got separated, how the ten tribes became thing. We read about this in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20 and verse 26 to 29, about King Jeroboam. You know, up to Solomon, it was a united kingdom. The twelve tribes were together. Solomon died, Rehoboam's son took over, and when he took over, he was very nasty with the seniors and the elders who came, particularly the ten tribes when they complained. So Jer the people invite Jeroboam to become the king, and we read this in 1 Kings. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. So Jeroboam had actually fled to Egypt, and there was a prophet who had spoken to him and said, one day you will become a king. And when Rehoboam and the ten tribes rebelled against Jeroboam, Jeroboam is called back, and he is made as the king. But listen to what he does in verse 26 and 29. He says, and Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, if this people go up to the offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other in Dan. Are you getting the picture? Here is Jeroboam getting the whole kingdom of ten tribes and he's feeling threatened. He says, if people go back to Jerusalem to worship, then the twelve tribes will come back together again and Israel will become one nation. So he does. He sets up two calves. And I want you to note Bethel because it's very critical as we read the book of Amos. Why Bethel? And he sets up and builds a temple in Bethel as an alternative to the temple that was built in Jerusalem so that people would not go back there. And this is how 
the whole Samaria came. If you read John chapter uh, 4, where Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, and you know the Jews hated the Samaritans because they felt that the Samaritans were mixing up God and the idol worship and everything together. And this is where it all started, when Jeroboam set it up. Let's move to the context of Amos now. You know, king, there are several kings that ruled after Jeroboam once. Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Several who ruled. And several years later came King Jeroboam II. Okay? And let's read this in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 to 25. A little bit about him. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became, began to reign Samaria. And he reigned for how long? How long? 41 years, that's longer than how David reigned or Solomon reigned. 41 years, they both reigned 40 years each. Let's move to the next word. And, and can we read that bold and underlined one? And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first Jeroboam that we read about, and which he made Israel to sin. But we also go on to read what he did in verse 25. He says, He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. And it's interesting here, verse 26, what you will read. It says, The God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai. Remember Jonah? Jonah's story? This is the Jonah who prophesies and says that the kingdom will expand back and it is fulfilled from Gethafer. That's what we read here. Now, what, I, what am I trying to say here? That during Jeroboam II's rule, it was called as the golden era after Solomon. Solomon's rule was golden era. He had no wars, nothing. But Jeroboam had wars and he expanded the kingdom. All the land that was lost over a period, he gathered it back and he really expanded the kingdom as far as it was prophesied by Jonah saying, this, is, this much is how, you, how much you will conquer. So people began to have a lot of success. There was a lot of military success. There was a lot of material success. There was a lot of prosperity in business that happened during the time of Jeroboam. Jeroboam 2. Let's read Amos chapter 1 and verse 1. Amos chapter 1 and verse 1. Now we are diving into Amos, okay? Words of Amos was among the, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now about this earthquake, nothing much we know, but we know it was significant enough that it was recorded in history, and people who read Book of Amos understood what that earthquake was, because Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 5, refers to the same earthquake, saying, how you fled during the earthquake time is the way you will flee into another country. That's the context that he is giving. Now for Amos, there were some contemporaries that he had. Jonah was his contemporary, Isaiah was his contemporary, Joel was his contemporary, Hosea was his contemporary. And these people, all of them prophesied at different times during that reign of 40, 41 years of Jeroboam and King Uzziah. You know, Isaiah starts with, in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw a vision. Correct? So, Isaiah probably lived but never prophesied. But after Amos came Isaiah, and then he began to prophesy. 
Let's go into the structure of the book and then I go into the message. The structure of the book. Book of Amos, chapter 1 and 2. This is just the overarching structure so that we are, we are aware of what we are going to be looking at. First of all, we'll be looking at the book of Amos in three sessions. Today, we'll be looking at one and two. Eight nations charged with judgment. There is an indictment that is coming on the nation. And there's a judgment that is being proclaimed on this nation. Chapter 3 to 6, there are five messages which are speaking about the reasons for the judgment. Why is God going to judge Israel? And chapter 7 to 9, we find he has three different visions about Israel and Israel's future. And he shares about that. And we will look at that coming weeks. So now to part one, the messenger and the message. Amos chapter verse 1 to 2. Now let's look at the messenger to start with. We read in verse 1 that Amos is one of the few prophets who introduces what his profession is. He is a shepherd. He is one among the shepherds in Tekoa. Tekoa is a city that is 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And he is a shepherd there. He is a businessman. And if we read on in chapter 7, verse 12 onwards, chapter 7, verse 12 onwards, And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. Verse 13. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, can we all read this together? I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore tree. Verse 15, but the... Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Verse 16. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You who say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord. And he goes on to prophesy on whatever different things that there are. First of all, do we, do we realize that there is an entire prophetic book written not by a full-time minister? It is a lay person. His profession is that he is a shepherd. He is a businessman. Scholars say he was not a shepherd working for somebody else, but he was a businessman himself who owned shepherds, who owned farms of sycamore tree, and he would work on dressing those figs of sycamore tree that were there. Figs of sycamore tree. So we see he is not a full-time minister, but he has been called by God to do the ministry. And he obeys that voice. And one of the beauty as I was reading about this messenger Amos, what inspired me is probably he was tending his sheep. Probably he was taking care of those figs, dressing them. And in the midst of that, he is able to hear God speak to him. The sensitivity that he had to God. Many of us think that hearing God is only for the full-time ministers. But my friends, hearing God is for each one of us. God calls each one of us to do something specific. And we got to learn to listen to God. And you know what? God tells him not to do ministry in his own area. No, no. He is calling him to go to a country that hates Judah that hates Judah. And here he is in Tekoa, which is a small town, maybe a village you can call it. And God is then calling him and saying, go to Bethel, which is a mega city. 
Bethel is a megacity, economically prosperous, religiously centered around temples and king's sanctuary and everything. And God is telling him, you go there. And he obeys the voice of the Lord, and then he goes on to Tekoa. What, is, what, what, what can we apply from this? Understand that each one of us who is seated in this congregation is called by Lord for some ministry or the other. None of us are just saved to remain blessed. Our blessing is to be poured through us to the others. I don't know what the ministry could be. All of us are not called to be preachers. All of us are not called to be teachers. All of us are not called to be worship leaders. But like Paul says, each one of us has a role to play in the kingdom. But the question to ask yourself is, what is the role I am playing in the kingdom? It could be as simple as coming on a Saturday to set the chairs in the church and to wipe them. It could be as simple as going and speaking some discouraged soul, meeting them and speaking a word of encouragement. It could be as simple as standing out there and greeting people. It could be visiting somebody in the hospital and praying for them. I don't know what it is, but you have a role to play. The question is, are you, are you sensitive enough to ask the Lord, Lord, give me that purpose to live for, that ministry that you call me to, that I will not waste away my years, Lord. I may be in a secular business. I may be in a secular work. I may be doing things on a daily basis to earn my living, but I still want to be sensitive to your voice, Lord. My friends, that, that's the beauty when I read Amos. I said, Lord, what a calling to go to a nation that hated his people. And he is able to go there. Each one of us can do something. Don't tell me you're not gifted. If you feel you're not gifted, praise God. God says he will gift you to do the thing. Do you know that when before I came to know the Lord, I was a stutterer and a stammerer. I would get nervous talking to two people at the same time. But when God called me to preach and said, go preach the gospel, God gave me the gifting. God will give us the gifting. All we need to do is saying, no matter what profession we are in, we need to be carriers of the message of the God, message of love of God. Hallelujah. The second thing we find that about him, he is called by God. He is called by God. I like that chapter 7 and verse 15, where he, where he so assuredly says, when Amaziah is mocking him, Amaziah is telling him, Go back, you seer. Go back to your own land. Earn your own bread there. Don't come here. He's discouraging him. And he turns to him and says, I was no prophet. I'm no son of prophet. But I have been called by God. When God took me and he said, go prophesy. Wow. <laughs> what, what a thing. Do you know that each one of us have a specific call? We don't have to mimic somebody else. We don't have to be somebody else. God has a specific call for each one of us. It may be small, it may be big. If he had not written the book, none of us would have ever known who Amos is. But he still impacted a nation for God's sake. He still spoke about the future of a nation because he knew without an iota of doubt that he is called by God. Why I'm saying this, this is specifically for those of us who feel called for ministry. I have found people getting into ministry because they're inspired by somebody or because they're so zealous for God. It's not your zeal that will take you on. It's the call of God that will take you on. It is not your enthusiasm that should drive the ministry. It is the call of God in our lives that should drive the ministry. 
We need to understand that when God calls us, He equips us. One parent, you know, he brought a child to a pastor to pray. And she said, Pastor, I have three sons. The first two are smart guys. They're doing engineering. But this fellow, he's like his father. Dad, can you please pray that he will get into ministry? This pastor refused to pray for him. She, he said, get me the other two sons. If you're not willing to give the smart ones, don't bring the dad to the ministry. You know, very often we think it's, 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 it's you know, just because there's nothing else to do, we will do ministry. No. We need to know what God has called us to. And we need to understand what God has called us to. And we need to move in that direction. And the next thing is secure in God. You know, in Amaziah, in Amos chapter 7, verse 12, Amaziah mocks him. You know, Amaziah is a priest, okay? And do you know what he talks about the temple? This is the king's sanctuary, and this is the kingdom's temple. It's not the temple of God. It's not the sanctuary of God. You know why? If you read back, I didn't want to go into all the scriptures. Jeroboam I, the son of Nebat, he allowed anybody who wanted to become a priest to be a priest. There were no more Levites qualification. Anybody could become a priest. Probably Amaziah is one of them who did not understand the things of God, but yet still he was in ministry. He was a priest because he had gotten into ministry for the benefit of what the ministry brings rather than to minister to God. And Amaziah turns to Amos and he mocks him and says, go back, go back. And you know, Amaziah is so secure in his God. He says, I will not go. Because God has taken me and God has told me to prophesy. In fact, it goes on to say, because you oppose the prophecy, because you have said do not prophesy, hear this, your, your wife will become a prostitute. And he just gives it back to him because he is a one man from Judah against the nation of Israel. One man. But his security in God is so strong to say, I don't care what happens, but I will proclaim what God has given me to proclaim. Hallelujah. You see, we will not have that kind of boldness if we are not anchored ourselves in God. We will live in the fear of people instead of saying, I will do what God wants me to do no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. And Amos was willing to do that. He said, you may kill me in Bethel. I know I'm in your territory. Amaziah could have just called the king and said, hey, listen, Jeroboam too. Slay this guy. He could have done that. Amos could have lived in fear. But he said, no, I'm so secure in God. And I'm so sure of my calling that I will proclaim the word of God because I've heard it. Hallelujah. You know, sometime back, I attended a meeting. I won't name it because you all will know. A meeting of all pastors and leaders where this man of God traveled across thousands of miles from another country. And he came and he made this statement. My heart really broke when I heard that statement. He said, I never go to a place where people tolerate me and do not celebrate me. I never go to a place where people don't celebrate me. I don't go to a place where people don't celebrate me, but only tolerate me. But I only go to a place where people celebrate me and don't just tolerate me. None of the prophets would have qualified against this man of God's statement. 
None of the prophets, none of the apostles, none of the disciples would have qualified against that statement. You know why? None of the prophets were received or celebrated by the people to whom they were prophesying. None of the apostles, when they went around preaching the gospel in the book of Acts, were received with welcome arms and say, come here, preach the gospel. They were thrown, they were stoned, they were martyred, they were put in prison, they were not celebrated. Kingdom of Rome tolerated them. My friends, don't go looking for people's acceptance from the call of God that you have in your life. Are you sure God has called you? Then do what God has called you to do. Don't look for people's acceptance. People may never accept what you are doing. Do you know many of the prophets, including Jeremiah and Isaiah, in their own time, they were rejected people. Now when we read the scriptures, we say, wow, Isaiah, wow, Jeremiah. But in their own times, they were rejected people. People may reject you. There will be Amaziahs who will speak discouraging words to you. Don't listen to them. Listen to God. And say, God, I will do what you want me to do. Amen? Amen. Turn to someone and say, I'm not a prophet. Neither a son of a prophet. But I've heard what God wants me to do. Amen? Why don't you tell somebody? I'm not a prophet. Neither a son of a prophet. But I know God has called me. Amen? So much for the messenger. You see how excited I got when I was studying the book of Amos. You can just see a tip of the iceberg. <laughs> okay? Let's go on to the message, which is very critical. The message, the main purpose for which he is writing this. I'll just give an intro for that and then we go into the main message. Of course, the message will continue on up to chapter 9, but we'll get a gist of it now. Let's look at Amos chapter 1 and verse 2. Amos chapter 1 and verse 2. And he said, the Lord roars in Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of shepherds moan and the top of caramel withers. Now you and me, when we read this verse, probably we think, oh yeah, the Lord roars. That's a common thing. What's there? But we need to understand every Jew knew Psalm 23 by heart. As much as it is our favorite psalm for most of us here, it was their favorite psalm. They knew God as the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And here is Amos coming and saying, the Lord roars. And this is not roar of a water, roar of a wind. It's of a lion. How do we know that? Let's read chapter 3 verse 12. Chapter 3 verse 12. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of lion two legs or a piece of a ear, or so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Can you imagine the picture that Amos is painting? It's funny. Come on. You guys need to have fun when you're reading the word. He say, you say the Lord is my shepherd. Listen, the Lord roars. And how do I know he roars? Because like a shepherd goes and takes a piece of a ear, piece of a leg out of the mouth of a lion, so will Israel be left. Samaria will not be rescued. So he's trying to paint a picture saying that there is love of God. Yes, he is the shepherd, but there is justice of God too. So book of Amos is a perfect balance to say there is the justice of God that is there which will bring judgment and there is the love of God that is there that will rescue. We will look at that in chapter 9. If you see the cross here, this is both justice and love. 
right on top sin, which was crucified. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for our sake. His justice of God, when he died on the cross of Calvary, the judgment or the law of God was fulfilled in Jesus. But what you see below that, forgiven, accepted, received, healed, all that is the grace of God. That's the grace of God. So Amos is now bringing the justice face of God to say, listen, God has given you opportunities, but you have not understood it. And then he goes on from verse 3, we will look. You know, the prophets also had a way. If you understand some of their writings, it's, it's, it's beauty to really read the prophetic books. It's, you'll really enjoy it. You know, prophets had a way of getting attention of people who they knew will not listen to them. They knew. Have you had people who will not listen to you, but you still have to speak to them? How do you do that? Learn from the prophets. You know, there was a prophet during the time of Ahab. He tricked Ahab. How? He, he told one man to slap him. He slapped him. One guy didn't slap him. He said, you'll die. And he dies. The second man slaps him. He gets hurt. And he puts a bandage around him and goes. And then meets Ahab. And then tricks Ahab to confess from his own mouth his own guilt. And then he just pronounces the judgment and walks off. Do you remember the story of David and Bathsheba? David and Bathsheba, when David sinned against Bathsheba, Nathan came. Did he come straight and say, you David, you're a sinner? He told a story, a parable, and through the parable, he got the attention of David and made David confess his own sin. See, that's, a, that's like a what is trickery kind of a thing. Same thing Amos is doing. When we read chapter 1, verse 3 onwards, he is addressing seven different nations. He is talking about the judgment on the nation. Now, verse 1 started with Amos, the son of so-and-so for Israel. But when he starts the judgment, he starts with Damascus. Let's look at some of the verses. Verse 3 onwards. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So he's starting the judgment proclamation from Damascus, not from Israel. And then he goes on to proclaim on Gaza and then go on to the next one. It's the same thing, just the country names change. In verse 9, Tyre, and then he adds there the regions of Philistia. Verse 11, Edom, and then verse, further verses 13, Ammonites, and then on chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about Moab. And chapter 2, verse, chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about Judah. There are two things here. One is, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, or three transgressions of Edom and for four. He says three transgressions and for four, but he cites only one transgression of each of these nations. Now you may wonder why this is. Sometimes, some scholars say it could be because, like we say, you know, a couple of days back doesn't mean two days back. It just means few days back. And in Proverbs also, you'll read a lot about it, where you say, for three sins of yours and for four, I will punish you, etc. So it goes on like this. It's not to just go by the number. Of course, when you see for three and for four, Israel who was in Bethel, Israelites would have been listening to say, yeah, yeah, tell me, tell me more. But he stops with one for each country or each, each of those regions that are there for Damascus. See, prophets, as I already mentioned, prophets' way of have a way of gaining attention. And second thing we find is when Israel is listening to the judgment on the nation, on Damascus, 
your brother, go, they deserve it. On Edom, your brother, go, they deserve it. On Moab, yeah, you know their history, they are bad, they deserve it. And he goes on talking, and Israel is feeling good. Seven different nations, including Judah. And the beauty is when it comes to Judah, he talks about how they broke the law. For the rest of the nations, no law. For Judah, he talks about law. And then when it comes to Judah, number seven, Israel thinks seven is a whole number for Jews. It's over. I am spared. Israel is spared. But then he goes on to talk about Israel. And he talks about three times as much sin of Israel than any other nation. Now this is where the rubber hits the road. This is where the reality comes home. This is where it is saying, hey, you laughed at it when I spoke about the other nation. But now let me talk about you. And then he goes on to elaborate. And the beauty is he talks about four sins of theirs. To start with. And of course, he goes on to give the reasons for other sins that are there. So let's read chapter 2, verse 6 to 7. The first sin that he's talking about is the sin of social injustice. In verse 2 and verse 6. Chapter 2 and verse 6. Let's read it. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Can you see this? People have got commoditized for a pair of sandals. Fashion has become more important than people. Does that sound familiar? For a pair of sandals. How many of us have not beat our son black and blue because he scratched your car? This is social injustice he's talking about. Let's go on. Verse 7, Vapatier. Those who trample the head of the poor in the dust of earth and turn aside the wealth of the afflicted. Here, he's talking about the sin of social injustice. I'm not going to go into that today, but in my next sermon that I'll be teaching on, I will talk about social injustice as a whole. So I can give you a perspective from the New Testament and the Old Testament. Why do we need to carry a heart for the poor? And how it impacts us in our spiritual life. So I will not look at that. You see, Tyre is right on top. Syria, which is Damascus. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Gaza, Judah. And then comes. If you notice, he goes to the external, draws a circle, then the internal circle, and then right in the middle of the circle, the pivot, is Israel. And he's talking about them. So let's move on to the second sin, chapter 2, verse 7. Sexual immorality. Let's read this together. Can we read this together, please? A man and his father go in the same, go into the same girl so that the holy name is profane. God's holy, my holy name is profane. Or God's holy name is profane. You know, I call this as a sexual immorality, a sin of sexual immorality which was prevalent because when you talk about sexual immorality, is it prevalent today? Does it apply to us today? I liked it when Pastor Charles prayed about, you know, breaking the bondage of pornography and, you know, all that. Today, churches are plagued, plagued with addiction of pornography. Leaders in churches are plagued with addiction of pornography. Extramarital relationships. One church I went to, I was so shocked because those who are involved in the church, lay people who are involved in the church, each one of them is talking about an extramarital affair. 
It's so prevalent that we need to, as a church, learn to address it and say, sexual sin is not just the sin of a pleasure that you deserve, but it profanes the name of God. Pornography, when you're watching, you think it's a sin that you are struggling, but it is a spiritual sin because it profanes the name of God. What we do in the physical, we think, and it will satisfy us, it profanes the name of God. And within the church, we need to rise up and stop profaning the name of God. God has given us the power to overcome the addiction. All he is asking is, do you have the desire to overcome? He will use that seed of a desire and he will give you the victory that from the very thoughts you will not have a struggle anymore. But the church has gotten so much into pornography. Why do we read today in the news about a 60-year-old grandfather who is sexually abusing a 4-year-old granddaughter? Because he's addicted to pornography. And we think, those of us who are addicted to pornography, you think it's just this one time. And that one time happens every time. And you think you will overcome it after marriage. It doesn't happen. You think you'll overcome it after children are born. It doesn't happen. You think you'll overcome it later. It doesn't happen. It only draws you in like a whirlpool. It sucks you in. It will never satisfy. At the age of 60, you will think his testosterone levels have come down. He should not be sinning anymore. But at age 70, people are still sexually abusing others. Why? Because this is not just about the physical. It's got the spiritual element. And we need to, as a church, rise up. If you are a person sitting here and you are struggling in this area, in whatever form, you call it soft porn, you call it looking at women and enjoying, looking at men and enjoying, you call it hard form, hard porn, you call it reading newspaper, looking at those half-naked figures and admiring them, no matter what your struggle is. God says, when you go through that struggle, His name is profane. His name is put to shame. And God doesn't want that in His body, where His name is to be glorified, that in the same body, His name is profaned. My friends, I invite you, if you are struggling, to meet with one of the leaders. Go through a process. It will take you weeks maybe. It will take you months maybe. But don't give up. Overcome the sin of sexuality. It is so addictive. It is worse than drugs and alcohol. It can just suck you in. And you will not know how to overcome. So I urge you to take help from the church that's willing to help. You hear testimonies of people from other churches being helped. Why not our own church? Please come and take the help. The first, second sin, sexual immorality. The third sin, Amos chapter 2 verse 8 says, No reverence for God. They lay themselves down beside every altar on the garment taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink wine of those who have been fined. They drink wine in the house of God. They've, they've lost reverence for God. They're not able to differentiate between the holy and the unholy, holy and the ordinary, because a Levite priest knew that the holy things belonged to God. They were sanctified. They could not be used for ordinary purpose. But the Israelites had lost out that view of the holy and the unholy. They could not differentiate it anymore. They just treated God like a chimp. 
I have said this earlier and I say it again. God is a close friend of ours. Yes, he is the closest friend of ours, but he is no chimp of ours. We've still got to maintain that reverence for God because he is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is seated in the most holy place. He is still seated on the most high throne. He still utters his voice and the earth shakes and the, and the mountains melt and the seas roar. He's still the same God. And we've got to have that reverence before God, be it when we pray, be it when we give, be it when we minister. We need to know it's not just us. It's God whom we are representing. And we've got to understand to take God more seriously. We take God for granted very often. And we'll deal with that maybe in the next week about how we take God for granted in our lives and how to deal with that. Thirdly, fourthly actually, the third one I didn't deal with, the fourth sin, be a stumbling block. We as believers becoming a stumbling block for somebody else's growth. And that's what happened here. But you made the Nazareths. You know the Nazareth is a person whom God calls and is dedicated. If you remember the story of Samson and Delilah, not supposed to cut their hair, they're not supposed to drink wine, they're supposed to not eat certain food. There were certain things that were given for a Nazareth. And every Jew knew it very well, what they're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And here, people are giving them wine to drink, which they're not supposed to do. And command the prophet saying, you shall not prophesy in this place. How do we become a stumbling block? Either leading others to do something wrong just because you are addicted, you let your children go scot-free when they do something wrong. You are, you are actually leading them when becoming a stumbling block. The second way we become a stumbling block, when we tell people not to speak too bluntly. There's a church where a pastor was removed by the committee because he was praying too much. He does not have preaching skills. Fair enough, he is removed. The second pastor was brought in, a great teacher and a preacher of the Word of God. Whether he prayed or not, I don't know, but he was a good teacher and the preacher. The committee got together and said, this preacher is so good, none of us are able to understand. They removed him from the church position, from pastorship. What are we saying? Churches today are beginning to want milk, not meat. We are okay. Blessing is ours. Every Sunday we come, listen to a message, have a feel-good factor, and you go back home. And then you just, you know, feel the joy. Your church is not just like, you know, you get inflated six days of the week, seventh day a week, pump it up, inflate you, and send you home. Church is not a place for that. And we as believers are not supposed to live a life like that. We are supposed to live a life where we are not a stumbling block. In fact, Paul, when he tells not to eat the food offered to the idol, he says the earth belongs to the Lord and everything thereof. It's the Lord's the food. Who is there who can say you cannot eat it? But he says, but if another man's faith is going to be impacted, you jolly well give that up. Sometimes, my friend, for the benefit of a weaker believer, for the benefit of a new believer, for the benefit of someone else, you may have to give up your rights. What you think is rightfully yours. Now the prophetic books are not getting so funny, isn't it? <laughs> it's getting hard because we're dealing with sin here. We're dealing with sin here. I know of parents who let their children be on the mobile and tab all the time just because they are addicted to Facebook and social media. They cannot tell the child not to do. We are becoming a stumbling block then. 
These are the sins. I'll deal with, as I said, the social sin later. But when I, when I, when I was looking at it, why, why is it that Israel went into such a mess, such a sin? You know, the fundamental reason for Israel's sin is prosperity and pseudo-security. Prosperity and pseudo-security. Amos chapter 3 verse 15, it says this. Can we all read that together? I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. You see, one is, they prospered so much, they had a winter house, they had a summer house, and they had couches of houses of ivory, great houses. They really prospered. Let's read on further, chapter, chapter 6, verse 4 to 6. Can we all read this together? Oh, to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Now, there's nothing wrong in eating mutton, okay? But I'm just talking about where our security is. I'll come back to it in a minute. Verse 5. Oh, sing idle songs to the sound of harp like David invent for themselves instruments of music. And verse 6. Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. You know what's the finest oils, New Testament version? The finest perfumes. Okay? But are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They're living a royal life, a prosperous life, but my brother is dying. There are people suffering. The other part of the church is struggling. I don't care. Because prosperity for me is a sign that God has blessed me. And blessing becomes more important than the heart of God. And this is what happened to the people. So when I look at that, verse six and, chapter 6 and verse 8, chapter 6 verse 8, it says, I abhor, that is hate, I hate the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. Israel had come to such affluence. They were, they, they were so rich. Their security became their richness. And since for 41 years they had prospered, they felt, they kept the religious feast, yes. They went to the temples regularly, yes. Amos addresses that in chapter 3 and chapter 4 later, when he says, go to Gilgal and give your tithes, or go to Bethel and give your offering. He is using a little bit of a sarcasm there. They were religious. They appeared as not bad people. But yet, underlying within that was a security that was perched not in God, a security and a significance that was perched in the blessings that God had brought. My friends, this happens within the church today. How often do we hear about the blessing messages of preaching? And how often do we hear the message of the cross and how Christ died for us? It's rarely heard. In the end, cliched, one sentence, if you want to receive the Lord, just give his life to the Lord. That's it. And the message closes. We have been forgotten as a church because as a church, I know we as individuals within the church, sometimes we place our security in the wrong things. Let's go on. I just want to conclude quickly. Where is your security coming from? For some of us, security comes from affluence. A new car that you buy, a new house that you build becomes the center of our lives. A new job that we get becomes the center of our lives. 
We start out well with all zeal and enthusiasm for the Lord. But when God begins to give us promotions, when God begins to give us blessing, you ask the same zealous person, why are you not involved in the ministry? He or she will say, I have no time. Because they want to continue. Success is in a way addictive. You want more of it. You want more of it. You want more of it. And affluence becomes addictive too. Some of us place our security in our academics. We study and we get a distinction or we get an A plus grade and that's our identity that we want to place in. Some of us place our identity in our appearance. Isn't it? Both positive and negative. I'm not good enough or I'm too good. Both shows where your security lies. If your security is in God, who cares what others think, how I look? I'm beautiful before God anyway. I'm smart before God anyway. Finally, achievements. Many of us make achievements as our recognition. I talk to leaders, I talk to people very often as part of my interaction. When I talk to them, they will tell a list of things that they're doing well and achievements. One man, I met him at the, in a lounge in an airport. And I, I was meeting him after about 10 or 15 years, I don't know. He pulled out a bundle of his passports and he started showing me one by one which all countries he's gone. I said, what have I got to do with that? And who am I? I'm meeting you after 15 years. Why should I know? But you know what? His security was in the achievement of the travels that he had done. My friends, what Amos is calling is saying, listen, come back to your security in God. It doesn't matter whether you're poor or rich, whether you're academically excelling or not excelling, whether you look good or not look good, whether you, whether, whether you have affluence or no affluence, or whether you have academics or not, it doesn't matter. Let's come back to God and say, God, in you is my significance. In you is my self-worth. In you, Lord, is my, my security. And you are my all in all. And Amos and Israel went away because they went into wrong, wrong area of security, of placing it all on affluence. The friends, I want us to think, Amos had a specific ministry that God called him to. What is your call? But tonight, just keep praying. If you don't know your call, pray. Fast and pray in the coming weeks. Say, Lord, I will not give up until you tell me what you're going to use me for. You can use anything, Lord. You can use me. Tell the Lord to use you like he did, like, like he did with Amos. Is there a sin that you're struggling with, that Israel struggled with? If there is any of those sins that you're struggling with, take help and do not become a stumbling block. I encourage you to repent of that sin and then come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to place my security in you. I want to be secure and significant and Lord, have it in you. You know, when it comes to being corrected, like Amos did, he spoke about the nations. It's very easy when we speak about others. But maybe today God is specifically speaking to you. It's very hard to take that. Amos knew that. So he went all around and then he came to the sin of Israel. It's very hard to take correction. That's because of pride that we have or because of wrong places of security we are in. If we can humble ourselves and say, God, correct me. God, Use me. God, anoint me. I don't want to be the way I am. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this message. To know more about us, 
please visit www.adonai-ministries.com.